Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me the owner of Mold Pro, Brad Slack. Hey, Brad, how are you today? Good, John. How are you? Great, great. Let, let me start off by asking you, how long have you been in business with uh, Mold Pro? Well, I started this, my wife and I started this business in 2003. Um, we've been doing it ever since. We've been very successful, had a, have a great business going. Uh, we enjoy what we do, and uh, it's been very, uh, very fulfilling. Good. Well, let's, what were you doing before that, though? Well, I owned a, a fence company with my brother, a family business that we had. I had a small construction company. Uh, and we had um, different visions of where we wanted to go. So I, I got out of that and uh, I fell into this through uh, my wife's brother, who suggested huh. I might want to take a look at this, this industry. And uh, lo and behold, I went to my uh, first certification in Vegas in uh, 2002, got certified. And now the rest is history. So what's, what's involved in getting certified? You know, because the, I didn't realize that the cert, you have a number of certifications. So I find that, you know, uh, laudatory. Well, it's been an interesting journey. It's, you know, it's a very unusual um, industry because up until 2016, there pretty much was no regulation in New York State. Um, so 2016, there was what it was like the Wild West kind of thing. Well, it kind of was, yeah. There was, you know, there were, there were two, you know, there's two sides to this industry. Mine, which is the assessment side, and then the other side, which is the restoration side. The guys that do go in, do the work, repairing, blah blah blah. Um, when Sandy, the Sandy storm occurred, there were a lot of companies out there, restoration companies, who went out and hurt a lot of people by doing the wrong thing. They didn't know what they were doing. They had no certifications. They they were just shooting from the hip and. And I mean, there was there was nightmare story after nightmare story um, after that storm. That was the impetus in the New York State to put in a, a division of licensing through the Department of Labor. Um, you know, unfortunately, the licensing still is a little weak, but it's better than nothing. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, the licensing, you have to have a certain amount of hours doing this. I mean, what's what's entailed? Well, that's, you know, that's the weak part for the licensing. On my side, basically, you have to have a driver's license, be 18, pass a, pass a, take a course and pass a very rudimentary test and you can be an assessor. So that's hmm. that's the weak side of the licensing. Um, you know, for example, when when the licensing, the inception was coming coming down the pike, um, I, I'm certified by the American Council of um, Accredited Certifications. I'm a board certified indoor environmentalist. Now that faction developed a protocol for licensing for state by state. state and they said, well, look, use our, our protocols for how we certify these individuals as your licensing certification. And they were gonna do that. But then the, um, the home inspection industry got their claws into it and that disappeared and it became very a very rudimentary license so hmm. that's where it's at today so the best advice to anybody looking for an assessor is to do their homework look at their background look at their history um, who's certifying them 
and, and how long they've been doing it. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, over the years, you must have uh, come across a lot of things uh, that that comes with experience. Um, so let's talk about mold. I mean, um, are there different types of mold? Oh, yeah. There are hundreds of thousands of species of mold and some are harmful. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands? Sure, sure, sure. I, 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 had no, I had no idea that's the case. I thought maybe it's like three, four, ten max. No, no. There are, you know, even, even certain species have thousands of subspecies. And so it's, you know, mold has been around since Earth was, you know, derived. They were first, the first organism that crawled out of the primordial soup. Hmm. And they've been here forever. And the classification basically are broken down into three factions, which are allergenic, pathogenic, and toxigenic. So these hundreds of thousands of species fall into one of those categories. And typically with water damaged buildings, we're talking more about the pathogenic and toxigenic species of molds. Are they the ones that affect people? Uh, yes, you know, pathogenic molds are molds that reduce your immune system and make you susceptible to opportunistic disease. And then the toxic molds are very, very harmful. It can, it can cause many, many, many different maladies, poisonings, and be very harmful, particularly hmm. for No, I find that uh, fascinating. Um, black mold, is that dangerous, black mold? I mean... Oh, yeah, look, black mold is, is the actual species of black mold is called Stachybotrys. So there are a lot of black molds, but there's only one black mold. So black mold, yes, is a very dangerous mold. Um, it's particularly dangerous and it has a particularly notorious um, history because it affects youngsters. You know, that particular mold is a large, heavy spore. And when it becomes airborne, it drops very quickly, lands on things. And children, particularly two and under, take everything, stick it in their mouth, and they get systemically infected by this, and it can be very, very harmful. Interesting. Oh, uh, so you want to avoid that. I mean, I, I once had a client uh, was showing houses to, and and uh, she would walk into a house and she'd say, nope, let's go. It has mold. Do you have that capability that you can go into a house and get a, a feeling that there's mold there? Well, you know, look, the, the big telltale is, is the odor, you know, the musty odor. That's, that's, the, that's the key. If you, you know, you're walking into a home that you're trying to sell or you have a home you're selling and there's a musty odor, it's going to be a big, big red flag and people are going to run. So do you recommend that uh, people that are thinking about putting their homes on the, on the market that they should get a mold test? You know, I think it's always good to be preactive and to have, particularly if you're a seller, let, let's have all your cards and your, all your ducks in a row. Right. Um, I do a lot of jobs that, it, you know, I get a call, hey, we're closing tomorrow, and <laughs> they did a walkthrough, and they found mold. How do we do it? And then, you know, then everybody's, then it's a problem. So <laughs> The it, day before the closing? <laughs> it happens all the time, I'm telling oh, you. And we need you there tomorrow, Brad. Can you do it? Well, well yeah, and, and you can't. You know, in all essence, of you can't. If you do testing, you, uh, it goes to a laboratory. They, that takes a few days. Reports take a couple of days, so... Speaking of testing, uh, what are some of the tools that you use for, for testing? Well, you know, the, the basis for my inspections is, you know, there's a lot of different things. And the most important part of, of what I do is getting my eyes on the job. Um, as I said, I've been doing this for 20 some odd years. I know where buildings fail. I know where to look. Um, so my process starts with a visual inspection. And obviously, I'm going and looking for visible mold but I'm also looking for the underlying cause, which is moisture. 
So during that inspection, I use moisture meters, thermal imaging cameras, my nose, my eyes to determine, to come up with a, a methodology or an understanding of what's going on. At the end of my visual, I'll sit down with my client and go over my impressions, what I see, what I think, we'll go over their concerns. And then based on all that data, I come up with a methodology for sampling if I think, if I think it's important. Um, types of sampling I do is, you know, the most productive type of sampling is an air sample. Um, I have a, a vacuum pump, it draws air into a special cassette. In that cassette, there's a microscope slide with an adhesive media. And any particulate that's floating around the air gets stuck onto that media. The lab takes that, cracks it open, looks at the microscope slide, and they speciate the mold. And they give me a, a spores per cubic meter. And that tells us what's in the air, what's floating around. Is there a health, health risk? It'll tell me, is there a mold behind the wall cavities that we can't see? Um, have the contents of the home been impacted? And gives us a lot of data. Um, it, uh, does air conditioning help? Uh, like, especially in the summertime, I'm thinking, you know, the humidity, that's, you know, would it increase, I would think, if there is any mold. Well, absolutely. Air conditioning is, is one of the best controls for moisture. You know, you relative humidity, high relative humidity in a house uh, will cause mold eventually. You know, the, if you get high relative humidity, the temperature drops down in the evening, things that air moisture in the air condensates on organic surfaces and mold can, that can be enough for mold to grow. Hmm. And a it, lot of times, you know, you go to somebody's house and you look on their shoes in their closet and there's mold on them or there's mold on the side of a dresser. You know, those are the telltale things that I'm looking for. Right. So when you, when you see these things, you, you automatically think then there's mold here. I mean, there's a source. Yeah. There's a source. Is are all homes, uh, are, do you come across homes that are mold free? I would think just, you know, just in general living, you know, people leave their windows open. Like you just said, you know, it's bound to get, you know, mold. But let me ask you this question. Where does mold come from? How do you get mold? Well, mold is ubiquitous. Mold is everywhere. Mm -hmm. 20% of the Earth's biomass is mold spore. So it's here. It has a very valuable job in, in nature and in, with our organics. Um, you know, it deteriorates all the, the grass clippings and the leaves that fall in the, in, the, in the forest. Mold is what breaks all this down. Um, so, you know, for example, when I do air samples, we always do an outdoor sample. And that sets a threshold for normalcy. We compare the indoor samples to that for that for that reason. Um, oh, so, in other words, like certain locations would have more air air spores. It, it will fluctuate, you know, in, in every every location day to day. And the theory behind that is that air exchanges in your home four to ten times a day, so the indoor air and outdoor air should be similar. And where there's varying species or varying spore levels and degrees, that suggests that there may be an endemic problem to the to the building to the dwelling. Right. Very interesting. Um, can a house have mold and still have a negative air sample? It can. You know, sometimes there can be mold tucked in areas that we just we just can't reveal. Uh, and, you know, again, that's that's one of the impetus behind testing. Um, how far do you go? You know, and, and how do you how do you evaluate that? I mean, I tend to be a realist and, and look at things as you know, every home has some degree of mold. We're not going to be able to find every square inch. Uh, we want to know how, if there's something there, does it present a health risk? Is it something that needs to be addressed or can we live with it 
to a degree that uh, we don't do anything. Hmm. Now, you also use infrared technology. What's that for? Well, that's, that, that sees temperature. So, you know, that's an in, that, that tells me if there's leaks that we can't see, if there's an active leak inside a wall cavity, missing uh, insulation that might cause condensation inside walls or be indicative of a, of a previous leak, gives us that kind of information. Gotcha. Do you find houses sometimes without insulation because of that? Yeah, older homes, particularly in the Hamptons, there are a lot of homes out there that have no insulation, sure. Yeah. Now, you know, another thing that I was just thinking that people go and get a home inspection and uh, many times uh, the home inspection is, you know, uh, comes the attorney uh, for the buyer says, you know, get a home inspection. But um, not many times do I hear, you know, getting a mold inspection. It sounds like uh, that's something that should be recommended. Well, you know, I tell all my clients, you know, that if they're looking to purchase a house, have somebody like me go in first and do an evaluation because the, the cost for a large remote remediation job can be easily six figures. I'm involved in six figure jobs on a weekly basis. Wow. That's so yep. you know, that can far outweigh the cost of replacing a boiler or a bed window. And unfortunately, home inspectors are not looking for the stuff. Excuse me, not looking for the stuff I'm looking for. Right, right, right. Now, you don't do reme remediation, do you? Or I do not. That's been, I've never done that. It's a conflict of interest. Um, even before licensing, I've never done the remediation. Right. Well, well, that sounds great. Now, if people have um, more questions for you, how could they uh, get in contact with you? Well, you can call me on my cell phone, which is 631-252-7775. Uh, I can take calls. I can take texts on that number, or you can reach me through my email, which is brad at themoldpro.com. Brad Slack of uh, Mold Pro. It's been a delight having you on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life Broadcasting here in Southampton, New York, on Long Island's only NPR station. Listener supported 88.3 WLIWFM. Don't go anywhere, because we'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher, and today I have with me the founder of JK Chef Collection, Jack Kelly. Hey, Jack, how are you? I'm terrific, John. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm so happy you're, you've come on the program. Um, before we talk about JK Chef Collection, let's talk about you. You've lived pretty much all over the world, and you have uh, homes around the world, and now you're here in East Hampton. So let me ask you the question. How does a kid from Philly get from there to here? <laughs> that's a good question. I think that's a question that everybody sort of answers somehow in their life. Um, well, I went to school here to begin with. I, I went to art school when I was um, 18. So New York has always sort of been in my blood. And, um, you know, all, all kids uh, during the summertime need to make money. So I would come out to East Hampton and, you know, I'd get a summer job and I thought it was the most beautiful place on the planet to live. And I said to myself, one day um, I'll live here. And um, I actually moved out to East Hampton when I was 25. And then um, a couple of years later, I ended up in, um, through a series of circumstances, I ended up living in Sri Lanka and uh, lived there for many, many years and uh, adopted a son and 
bought and sold a hotel. Um, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, I'm a little bit of a globetrotter. And then um, about 10 years ago, or maybe less, I um, decided to come back and uh, revisit my roots. And here I am. That's fantastic. So how did you come up with this idea of putting together a group of chefs? Well, it, you know, it's so funny. I don't actually come up with ideas. I think ideas come to me. Um, I was uh, for many years and I was sort of between Sri Lanka and New York. And because of my art background, I um, formed a company called Jack Kelly and Partners. And basically what we did is that we provided, um, we put architectural and design teams together. Um, and interesting enough, I had a lot of clients at the time that were building huge homes, um, mega mansions in the Hamptons. And invariably, during the course of conversations, they'd say, do you know a chef? We just built this amazing house with an amazing kitchen. And my client decided they want a chef. And I, I said no the first three or four times. And then I thought to myself, well, maybe I should you know, investigate this. So on the side, I started to um, recruit chefs from New York, mostly, you know, um, out of work chefs that had been working in really kind of three or four star restaurants. And, um, and then I let it go. Um, and then it came back again, in full swing. And I said, you know, I'm, I was living in the city at the time. And I said, you know, I bet that I could make this into a full-time job, which is exactly what I did. I moved out to the Hamptons full-time and that's all I did was provide, and that's still what I'm doing largely is providing um, private chefs for, for, for people that, uh, you know, in their private homes. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I know a lot of real estate agents have been asked by their clients to recommend the chef. So you must be inundated with re requests now, especially with the events and private parties. Yeah. And, and so how do you keep up with the demand? Um, well, I don't really try to keep up with it. Um, you know, I, let me backtrack. When I first started out, I would do, I would do one-off events um, for, for clients. And if somebody called me on a Tuesday and they were having a dinner party on Friday, I for sure could find them a chef. And then, you know, with with COVID, um, it just turns turned turned everybody's life upside down, including mine. And what I thought was really interesting is that in the and I'm sure you'll agree with me in the um, sort of uh, real estate world and architectural world, people were really turning inward. Uh, they weren't going to restaurants. They weren't going on vacation. They weren't going to the beach. So what they did is they they sort of made their home the center of their universe, which meant um, putting in, you know, um, a home theater, uh, expanding their kitchen, um, really updating, um, updating everything. So the home became the center of their universe and um, part-time chefs turned out to be full-time chefs and chefs that didn't have much of a pedigree client said, well, I really want them coming from a four-star restaurant or I want them to have studied in Paris or I want them to be masters at Japanese cuisine. So all of a sudden, um, it it has become it's become quite an adventure, sort of keeping up with that demand, um, and it's been really interesting um, because people, because of the pandemic, have really educated themselves a lot more in food, and anything that people could do to sort of entertain themselves, uh, which includes you know um, uh, not only a fabulous chef but a, an interesting chef. So. That's really been the focus of our business, I would 
say over the last year and a half. It's it's been really interesting, and, and you know, and we've expanded, John, um, from chefs into butlers into house managers, um, and even the butlers. The modern day butler is no longer you know, coming from, um, you know, sort of an upper-class English home. No, you know, it's um, kind of interesting that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to talk about that, but first I want to just take care of the chefs and then we can talk about your domestic collection, collection, you know? So uh, one of the things I I want to ask you is, I know you have a culinary testing program. So is that part of your vetting process for the chefs? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, Because I really can't, I can't really recommend a chef on any level unless they've cooked for me. Um, and, and really what I, I look at, I look at who they are. I look at the places that they've worked. Um, I've looked at the, the schools that they've gone to. I would say 95% of the chefs that we work with, um, you know, they either have a three or four or two year culinary background. And I'm pretty insistent on that um, because there is a foundation that chefs need to, to learn. Um, and if you don't know the basics, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it becomes problematic down the line. I, I can imagine. Um, how about, how do you, do you go by gut feeling, you know, when you connect a totally. chef with a, uh, a family? I mean, you yes. obviously, you know, it's like a vetting, I imagine, you know, with the family as much because these people are going to be with Correct. each other for a period of time. So yep. it's really all gut. Yeah, it actually is. It's like it's like being a professional matchmaker, only for chefs. Um, you know, <laughs> I like <that. laughs> it. Really is. I mean, it's it's kind of amusing, but you know, I can just tell. For example, um, younger families, twenties, early thirties, um, their life is in the Hamptons or even in in Connecticut and New York. It's an open kitchen. It's the it's the big kitchens, the marble. It's the family room and it has to be, and, and people will come and they'll, they'll sit and they'll want to talk to the chefs while they're trying to put together a full course meal. And they're going to, you know, they're, they're just talking and asking all kinds of questions. And the chef has to really A, be patient and B, be able to juggle those conversations, be entertaining, mixing martinis and cooking dinner <laughs> and serving at the same time. Whereas an older couple, um, you know, late 60s, 70s, 80s, um, they're used to a different way of life. They're more used to having the chef do what they do. They want the chef to be pleasant, um, but they want the chef just to really pretty much do their job. And, and in some ways, they're really my ideal client. Right. Well, you know, when you say that, I mean, it's got to be distracting. I, I love to cook. And, and um, you know, a lot of times when you're entertaining and you have friends over, et cetera, it's just, uh, you know, because you're trying to juggle so many things. So I can imagine how that must be difficult for. Well, you know what you know what the chefs do, and and they're smart. Uh, number one, they prepare food that they prepared a hundred times, so they can do it with their eyes closed. Number two, when it's a big party and they know that people are going to be milling around and spilling cocktails over their stew, um, they they we, they tend to try to keep things a little bit more simplistic um, than if than you know if they were. I mean, it used to be that the kitchen was hidden in the back and nobody ever saw the chef ever. Um, you know, the butler came in and he brought everything out and plated everything. And it's, it's a completely different ballgame. And that's why I, I tend to go with chefs that, that have a culinary background and are 
have taken the time out of their life to actually get a degree. It says something about them and it, it, it's, um, you know, big, big bonuses for me. It just makes me feel better. And when I'm selling a chef, that's one of the first things I say, oh, well, they've graduated from the Culinary Institute. They did a four-year program and, um, you know, they're really versed in all types of, of cuisine. And another issue that's really important and people forget about is food safety. It's critical. And that's one thing that all of the culinary schools really stress. Um, and a lot of people that have been line cooks in restaurants that have decided that they want to be, you know, um, a private chef, they're clueless. So that's something else that I'm extremely mindful of. Hmm. Interesting. That's very good. Now, let's segue into uh, domestics with your JK domestic collection. And that provides housekeepers, estate managers, drivers and other domestic staff. Is there a vetting process for them also? Uh, not as much, John, um, okay. because food is so specific. I mean, yes. I mean, you know, I'm certainly not going to hire a driver that's had three DUIs and <laughs> has had speeding <laughs> tickets out the wazoo. I mean, I do check their background and I check their driving record and, and make sure that they haven't been in right. prison for the last 10 years. Um, but I... <laughs> Uh, certainly don't want no. that person let yeah, me ask, exactly <laughs> let me issue um, about you you were talking earlier about butlers which i find fascinating are there for chefs there's the you you mentioned culinary schools but are there schools for butlers and where do you find yeah there, um there are some schools for butlers i mean i don't Yes and no. There, there are some great schools in England, for sure. Um, but in the United States, there, there, there aren't that many schools that, um, that really hit the mark, that really hit the mark for me. So here's, here's the story there. A lot of young people that um, went to hospitality school, um, you know, to, to work in the hotel world, to work in the, in the restaurant world, because of the pandemic, they're not getting hired. They're just not. Hmm. So what they're doing and what I'm doing is I'm saying, hey, you know, why don't you be a butler? You, you understand everything that needs to happen in a home. That's part of your program. Um, so, number one, they're they're on what well, matter if they're young or they're old, but they they're they're educated um, and they understand what a family wants. Um, and that works out really well. Um, it's I mean. I'm getting ready just today to, to, to place a chef who has a master's degree um, in hospitality. He speaks three languages. He's 35 years old. Um, he's asking for a lot of money and my client's going to pay it for sure. So people aren't afraid of spending money, but they want a certain type of person in their house that can not only drive them. Um, that can, especially with women, they have extensive wardrobes. Um, they want someone to inventory their wardrobe, do seasonal changes. Um, when a woman goes to the Met to a gala, the the, the um, butler is going to is going to memorialize all of that. So there's a whole there's a whole big life um, that you know, and, unless you're part of that echelon, you just don't even think exists. But it it really does. Um, a lot of butlers travel with clients. They go seasonally from the Hamptons to Palm Beach in the winter um, with trips to Aspen or um, maybe Zermont, and they travel with them on their private jets. That's pretty great. That's a lot of fun. It does sound, it sounds wonderful. What's the easiest way to reach you if someone has questions about JK Chef's collection or JK Domestic collection? 
Sure. Um, the easiest way is to reach us at jk at jkchefcollection.com. That's, that's it? That's, yeah, that's, 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 that's really pretty it. easy. That's pretty easy. <laughs> that's pretty easy. <laughs> Jack, um, Kelly, Jack, it's, go ahead. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? No, it's JK. It's not Jack. It's JK at jkchefcollection.com. Or they can reach um, me at jackkelly3 at me.com. So that's my name and the number three at me.com. Either way, um, people, we get, we get discovered. I'm sure you do. And okay. Thank you so much, Jack, for coming on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life Broadcasting here in sunny Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And don't forget, have an awesome journey. have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM. Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at WLIW.org radio.